Now I have the honor uh, to introduce our guest teacher this morning. Ryan Pastor is here before us, and he and his wife, Jen, are very good friends of Suzanne and I's. Um, Ryan was my pastoral mentor at Corinth Reformed Church in Byron Center when I was going through ministry. Um, so God used him in my life uh, as a mentor to teach me much about the gospel, much about what it means to serve in Christian ministry. But I must say, if, if you see any weaknesses in me, you can talk to him this morning since he's here. So that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> um, no, he was great. And so God's used him and continue uses him in my life. So I'm thankful that he's here to teach us this morning in the book of Philemon. Um, also, we're glad to have uh, his children here, Isaac, Rosie, and Meg. And so hope look forward for you to hear him preach and to meet his family later in the service. Um, now, as we continue in worship, I'd like to read from God's word the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. And so let this be kind of a preparation of our hearts as we continue in worship, and then we'll open in prayer. Hear the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that the youth, your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Nor He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the revelation of who you are in this passage. And so we gather as your covenant people to bless you, for you are a kind and gracious God. Lord, we are no longer... Under the power of sin, we are no longer the condemnation and guilt of sin, but you have set us free in Christ that we may receive your grace, your benefits, your forgiveness, your blessings. And so we gather this morning to remind ourselves of who you are and what you've done. Remind ourselves of who we are in you. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship this morning, would you receive the honor, praise, and glory for the work of your Son? Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. And, Lord, we come to worship you. It's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, thank you for having me here this morning. Um, are we okay? Okay, good. Um, it's, it's a joy for me to be here. My family actually got to worship with you uh, a few weeks ago when Pastor Gary preached on parenting. We were vacationing just south of here, and uh, it was a joy to be here and uh, just experience uh, your church. And uh, I also... I'm just grateful. We, I still remember when we were sitting with uh, Travis and Suzanne uh, in our small group and uh, just knew that they were being called here and after praying and, and hoping that they would find just a great church. Um, it's just great to, to see where they've ended up and um, we're just grateful for you as a church family for welcoming them and for making this a new home for them. So thank you. Um, this morning, I want to take a look. I know you've been doing a series on Proverbs, and we're going to take a break from that and look at a letter in the New Testament, uh, Paul's letter to Philemon. And it's a short letter. You can find it on page 1183 in the Pew Bibles. 
And we're actually going to read through the entire thing. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's a, a short letter. It probably takes about three minutes to get through. Um, and so by the end of today, you'll have looked at an entire book of the Bible. <laughs> so let's take a look at Philemon. And I'll begin in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold, I could order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, and I will pay it back, not to mention you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we're grateful that it was recorded for us, this personal letter. And may the words that Paul wrote inspired by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts today as we learn how the gospel truly transforms and changes our lives and our relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a personal letter, and I'm aware that not many people write letters today. Um, you know, if you're like me, you email everything, or you text message or Facebook someone. In fact, uh, I'd venture to say most of you probably haven't in the last few months, actually written a pen and paper letter. If I'm wrong, that's great. But uh, besides greeting cards on Christmas or Mother's Day, you probably don't actually write anything anymore. Uh, that's the majority of people today. But I want to read you um, 
a portion of a letter, and uh, there's a reason for this, so bear with me. Uh, But listen carefully to what I read and see if it makes any sense to you at all. Dear Meg, I did something silly today. I shaved my head. Actually, Amy did it. I don't think she'd ever cut hair before. It's cooler now, but I hope it starts growing back soon. Last night, I went to the Civic Center with Hiroko and Grandma, Amy and Jill. The show was an hour. It involved audience participation. Of course, I didn't know this at all. The dancers were performing on stage, and I was sitting in my seat comfortably when a man in a green pajama suit started talking in Japanese and pointing at the crowd. And the next thing I know, everyone's pointing at me. I have no idea what's happening. And then I realized I'd been volunteered for a dance. They brought me up and I shuffled around on stage for five minutes to muted applause. I think the idea of me dancing was more exciting than the actual performance. The girls, Hiroko and Grandma, were next, and I took lots of pictures. Jill won an award, but I won nothing. It's time for children's class, and I'm ending this one right here. May God bless you. Well, I wrote this letter and about 30 more like it, about 14 years ago, when I was uh, spending time in Japan teaching English for a summer. And there's lots of things I mentioned in that letter that probably make absolutely no sense to you. Uh, And you may recognize a few things, but you'd be wrong. For example, grandma is not my grandma at all. It's uh, the grandmother of the family I was staying with, a Japanese host family at the time. In the city where I lived, you may wonder why was I dancing And why were they wearing green pajama suits? Well, the city where I live, Tokushima, is world famous for this special dance that they do. And the women have a part and the men have a part. And I had been called up, even though I'm a terrible dancer, to to perform the male part. And uh, and so not knowing any of that background, you would have pretty much no idea what my letter was about. And when you read a letter, even in the Bible, like the letter we're looking at this morning, This one in particular is is really between two people. I mean, it was read to the entire church, but it's really addressed to a man named Philemon. And the first thing you're going to notice is it's like stepping into the middle of a conversation. Uh, Unless you know the context and the people and the situation, it's really hard to know what's going on. So um, the passage we're looking at this morning, it's between two friends. You'll know one of them, the Apostle Paul. The second is a man named Philemon. And then they're in this letter talking about a third man whose name is Onesimus. So try to keep that in your head because you're going to need to know the main characters. And we're going to need to know a little background on these people too if we're going to understand what's going on. So who was Paul? Let's start there. That's an easy one for most of us. But in case you don't know who he is, I'm going to give a little background. Paul's one of the most famous Christians who ever lived. He was a Jewish man. He was trained as a Pharisee. He uh, persecuted the early Christian church. And then he had a radical conversion experience where Jesus appeared to him. And he was, he was traveling. Jesus appears in a vision. And from that moment on, Paul spends the rest of his life uh, preaching the gospel, traveling from city to city. And one of the cities he visited was called Ephesus. And Paul didn't just visit there. He stayed there for over two years. And he worked. He was a tent maker. He, he actually made tents. And he taught people about Jesus. And during that time in Ephesus, he developed a close relationship with a wealthy man named Philemon. Philemon became a Christian through Paul's preaching. And quickly he became a leader of one of the churches there. And Philemon, because he was a wealthy man in the Roman Empire, he owned slaves. Now, slavery was quite common at the time, and I'm going to say more about that a little bit later. 
But one of the slaves that he owned was a man named Onesimus. From what we can tell, Onesimus was, was not a Christian at the time. He may have heard Paul preach, but we don't know what contact they had, if any. And after two years in Ephesus, Paul left the city. He went to Jerusalem. He was arrested on these trumped-up charges, sent to Rome for trial. And in Rome, under house arrest, he was several years a prisoner. And he wrote most of the letters that we have in the New Testament. And among those is the one we're reading today. And here's where the story gets interesting. Um, At this point, we don't know when, but Onesimus, the slave... He stole something, and it was probably a bag of money, maybe like this. Maybe it was some property he had. And he ran away, and he happened to flee somewhere. He fled to Rome. And by the grace of God, this runaway slave found his way to the Apostle Paul. We don't know if it was by accident or if Paul or Phonesimus sought him out, but it was definitely God's grace that led him there, the sovereignty of God. Uh, Paul led Onesimus to Christ, and for quite some time, this runaway slave who'd stolen from his master and disgraced his name, uh, he helped the Apostle Paul with his preaching in Rome and his writing. But the time came when both men knew that they had to to right the wrong that had been committed, and Onesimus would need to return to his former master. And that's where the letter we read picks up this morning. It's, It's really an amazing letter. There's there's not much like it in the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle Paul to this man he led to Christ many years ago, this wealthy slave owner, and he's pleading for mercy on behalf of a runaway slave. And you'll notice that Paul deeply loves both of these men. He has the power, he even admits, to order Philemon to accept back this runaway slave as an equal and forgive what's been stolen. But he does not do that. And that's what I want to point out this morning, the significance of what Paul does not do. Instead, he does something radical. He speaks to the heart. He draws our attention back to the gospel, to this amazing grace that we've received from God. And he he says, look beyond this money that's been stolen. Look beyond even the injustice of slavery to something even more important, this reality that in Christ, everything changes. Lives are changed, relationships are transformed, and the gospel has the power to change history. And so this morning, I want to draw your attention to three things about the way Paul writes this letter. First of all, you'll notice uh, that Paul isn't just interested in external behavior here. He's interested in a change of heart. Listen to what he writes in verses 8 and 9. He says in verse 8, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was uh, with my family, and we were, uh, as probably many of you were, we were at a Fourth of July parade. And I was watching, and um, you see a lot of families there. And I noticed uh, a dad with his son, probably two to three years old, and uh, the son was interested in all that was going around, the, the kids there, all the parade stuff going on. Uh, but his dad you know, wanted him to stay close, not to wander off in a crowd. Uh, but the two-year-old just didn't want to listen. Imagine that. Uh, he wandered away, and the dad had to get up. He had to pick up his son who started crying and carry him back and hold him close. 
And you know, my, my kids are the same way. Every two-year-old is like this, really. Uh, and parents need to teach kids the rules, right? Uh, it's for their own good. It's to protect them, to love them well. But we all know that the goal of parenting is never simply obedience, as important as that is. Uh, as my son, who's here this morning, as he gets older, um, especially as he gets into those teenage years, I know I'm not going to be able to order him around or pick him up and make him obey me. That just doesn't work. Now, the goal of parenting is, is deeper than that. It's to help a child realize that it's not, it's not just what he does or doesn't do that matters. It's why he does it. Let me say that again. As important as good behavior is, and it's important, but it's not what a child does or does not do that matters. It's the why, the intent, the motive, the heart behind it that matters. And as much as I want my son to do what I ask him to do, I want him to do it because he believes it's right, it's good. I want him to do it out of love and respect for God. I want him to love what's good and what's noble, what's honorable. And that's true in every relationship. We want the heart. Uh, you can think about marriage, too. I celebrated my anniversary this last week, and um, I would have been a bad husband if I had done nothing for my wife on our anniversary. That is very true. But here's the, uh, an even deeper truth. If I were to give her flowers, which I did, if I were to take her out to dinner, which is nice, and I did that, uh, if I do those things because it's what I'm supposed to do, or even worse, because I know that's going to make my life easier, then it's really about me, isn't it? It's not about her at all. It's about me looking for the easiest relationship I can get. And the flowers aren't quite as wonderful as they would be if I gave them because I love my wife. And uh, the reason I gave them is because she's, she's beautiful to me. And uh, that's, the flowers are a reminder of that. So does that make sense that, that the what isn't as important as the why, even though the what is important? And the reason I mention this is because it's right here at the heart of the gospel, that the people, if you read the gospels, who received the most criticism from Jesus, the rebuke that he saved for them, was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were very religious people uh, in their day. In outward action, they lived these clean, perfect lives, they did all the right things. They behaved in all the right ways. But Jesus saw what was inside. He saw their heart. And he saw that everything they did was for themselves. It wasn't done out of love for God or for others. And in our letter, Paul, he writes to his friend Philemon, and he says, please accept back this runaway slave as a new brother in Christ, this man who stole from you, who disgraced your name. Now, Paul he is, he's kind of the head honcho in the church. You know, he's the top dog. And, and he, he can order this. He can say, just do it because I say so. And on top of that, Philemon owes his, his faith in Christ to this man. This is the guy who led him to Christ, right? His salvation, in a sense, is dependent on what Paul has done for him. And though Paul could order him, you know, he could say, hey, I'm the guy who, who wrote most of the New Testament. I've written inspired letters. I've seen Christ uh, personally. And, uh, and I, can, I can say this and you have to do it. But he doesn't just want to order his friend. He isn't interested in just outward acceptance. He's not looking for a favor. He wants Philemon to realize from the heart that this is good and right to forgive this former slave 
and accept him as a brother for the sake of Christ. Paul wants to see a change of heart. He wants love to be the motive. And listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. I think that's a, that's a great insight. Paul says to his friend, I don't want anything you do to be forced. I want it to be spontaneous from the heart. And that's the first thing we learn from this letter is that as Christians, the reason why we do something matters just as much, if not more, than, than actually doing the right thing. Because God cares about our heart, our motives, and he wants to see our hearts transformed, and that lead to outward behavior change. And so in our marriages and our relationships as friends, we always need to be thinking that extra step. Am I doing the right thing? But even more importantly, am I doing it for the right reasons? And if not, God, change my heart. Please help me. Remind me of the truth of the gospel, how you saved me a sinner when I didn't deserve it, and how now I can show your love, the love you've shown to me to others. So that's the first way Paul applies the gospel in the letter. The second thing I want you to see is that the gospel of God's grace redefines our relationships with each other. And uh, these are chains. They're probably not the chains they used at the time. But I want to talk a little bit about slavery. Um, For most of us, slavery is not something that we deal with on a daily basis. Uh, But in Roman times, it was. It was a part of life. Slavery divided the world into two segments. There were the slaves uh, and there were the free. And Roman civilization was was based on slavery. The economy depended on the slaves for their labor. Uh, It wasn't based on race, as we often associated in America. But it was based on the circumstances of life. So a person who was convicted of a crime would become a slave often. But also children whose parents could not afford to care for them. They lived in dire poverty. Uh, They would sometimes leave their child at the the temple, become a slave to give them a chance in life. Other people would even sell themselves into slavery. Um, They would do that to avoid starvation or even to assume a role in a wealthy family. If you had few resources, it offered a possibility of a decent life. And in fact, some slaves rose to prominence in the empire. They became prosperous and wealthy. Some served in the temple or became policemen. Others became secretaries, clerks, architects, artists, musicians, writers, librarians, doctors, tutors. And slaves were in almost every job except politics and the military. But despite all these possibilities, I don't want to make it sound like it was the greatest thing you could do. Uh, Because there was still a major difference between being a free person and a slave. The law treated a a free person as a person with legal rights, whereas a slave was property, and they had no legal rights. Their entire life was at the disposal of their owner, and running away was a risky business. It promised little reward, because if you were caught, you were whipped, you were branded, you were put in chains, you were forced to, to wear a neck collar in some cases, Uh, often they would break the legs of the slave. They could even sell them to the mines or sentence them to death. And I want you to notice how Paul addresses this issue because, and this is one of the controversial things in the New Testament, 
people wonder, why don't you just come out and condemn slavery? Why don't you just say it's wrong? And Paul doesn't do that here. And I think he doesn't because he knows that the seeds of change are already there in the gospel. In other words, Paul's point isn't to condemn slavery, to just say what's wrong and what's right. He wants to show how Jesus condemns the very evil in our hearts that leads to slavery. It's the lack of love that we have for one another. So let's look at how he does this, how he condemns the evil in the heart. And this is incredibly subversive. Notice how he refers to Onesimus, this runaway slave. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while in chains. In verse 12, he says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. And then in verses 15 and 16, he says, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. And notice the language that Paul uses. He's very clear about how he sees this runaway slave. He calls him his son. That's that's, uh, very emotional language, right? He refers to him as my very heart. He says he's a dear brother in the Lord. So what's happened? Why is this, this runaway slave, a thief, who's stolen from his master, he has no legal rights, why is he someone that Paul wants to, to put his name and his reputation on the line for this man? And the simple answer is that Onesimus became a Christian. And if you're like me, you might say, well, is that all? <laughs> I mean, becoming a Christian, is that really that big of a deal? And I think... My response and the response most of us have shows us how little we grasp the implications of the gospel, what God intends in terms of transformation. You see, the gospel isn't just, it's not just something we believe and we say and then life goes on as usual. The message of the gospel really does change things. And not just for us, it changes our relationships. It redefines the way we relate to one another. It changes our status. It destroys the social order of this world and replaces it with something new. You see, no longer is Onesimus, follower of Christ, a runaway slave. He's a child of God. He's a brother in Christ. He's gone from slave to brother, and that's a big shift. He's not just a piece of property that you beat. He's a person of value and worth, someone Christ died to save. He's gone from this worthless thief to someone who's been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And that's a huge change. You see, prior to this time in history, people did not think this way. And this belief, the truth of the gospel, literally changed history. It took some time to filter down into civilization and society, but it it was the seed here in this letter, the seed of the gospel truth, transforming our relationships that led to the abolition of slavery around the world. And the gospel tells us that at the foot of the cross, we all kneel as equals. It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor, if we're slave or free, if we're male or female, we're young or old. God doesn't care about the size of our house. He doesn't care about the size of our bank account, how many degrees we have or what we've done in life. We all stand before God as sinners, as rebels who have rejected his authority. We've broken his laws and we all need his grace and his forgiveness. And as Christians, we we no longer relate to one another in a worldly sense. 
because of our social status or because of our income levels or our education. We relate to one another as brothers and sisters. I love that when you greeted this morning at the beginning, I forget who it was, but someone reminded us that we're a family here. And we are. We're members of a common family adopted by the same father. I want to share a story some of you might be familiar with. Um, it's a story of, it's Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, but it's, it's really Elizabeth I want to focus on. If you don't know the whole story, I'd recommend uh, reading the book Through the Gates of Splendor. You might have it in your church library here, but um, I read this book in college, and it, it, my, for my wife and I, it was very powerful just reading the story of this, this couple. Um, in fact, we, we named our kids, uh, their middle names we gave after uh, the Elliots because it was so powerful for us. Uh, it's a story of how God called five men and their wives to bring the gospel to this cannibalistic uh, tribe in South America. They'd never been reached with the gospel, and the men made some initial contact with the tribe, but after a couple of weeks, they were speared to death. They were murdered brutally. And Elizabeth, the wife of one of the men, uh, said to God at the time, and she was, I can't believe this, but she was a mother of a a 10-month-old, her daughter Valerie at the time, and she said, Lord, if there's anything you want me to do for these people, I'm available. And it turned out God did want to use her. And she returned a year later with her two-year-old daughter and began living with the tribe. And she got to know two of the men who had actually killed her husband and her friends. And she recalls a conversation she had with one of the men named Jaquita. He says to her, One day I and my friends went over to the river where we knew their camp was, the missionaries, because we'd been spying on them from back in the forest. They hadn't seen us, but we had seen them. We took our spears, six men and four women. The men hid in the jungle. We sent the four women onto the beach to see what the men would do to them. But those white men didn't do anything to the women. They laughed, they talked, they gave them food. And I finally said, I brought my spear and I'm going to use it. So I jumped out from my hiding place in the jungle. I rushed into the river and I sank my spear into the back of one of those missionaries. Probably your husband, he said. Think about how hard it would be to listen to that as the man who killed your husband is relating the story. And at this point, he's not a Christian. He's just saying, just something I did. But Elizabeth Elliot knew that she needed Jesus. She knew that these men needed Jesus. And so she forgave them. She showed love to them. And eventually, they became Christians. They became her brothers in Christ. The men who killed her husband became her beloved brothers And I want to say only Jesus can change relationships that way. Uh, But he can and he does. The truth is that the gospel is not a safe and easy message. It turns everything upside down for us. It can make a slave and a slave owner brothers. And it has the power to change your relationships as well, wherever you're at today. There's one final thing I want to show you from this letter. And it's, What the Apostle Paul reminds us of, that the story of Onesimus is our story. And that's good news. And I love how Paul intercedes for this runaway slave. First, notice how he talks about the way that Onesimus has been changed. He says in verse 11, Formerly he, referring to Onesimus, was useless to you, but now he's become useful, both to you and to me. And if you're wondering... Uh, in, in the NIV, it uses the term useless and useful. Uh, this is actually a play on words. It's, it's kind of a pun. 
the Apostle Paul, he didn't do stand-up comedy, but he did have a sense of humor. And this is one of those examples where, where he was kind of making a joke. Uh, but it's a good joke. He's saying with a smirk that regardless of the fact that this slave was useless, he ran away, and now he's living up to his name. He truly is useful. He's Onesimus. He's, a, he's got a purpose now. And God's using him to advance the gospel, to bring others to know God. But even though uh, Onesimus is now a useful person, that's not the main reason why I want you to accept him back, Philemon. Paul says in verses 17 and 18, and he gets to the heart of Paul's appeal. He says, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. And I find this pretty amazing because it's not the way things often work, even in the church, sadly. See, Paul, again, is a leader in the church. And again, he can easily just order Philemon to do what he wants him to do. And that's the way things usually work in the world and, and even in the church often. But instead, he takes a risk. He puts his name and his reputation, his own finances on the line. And he says, all of this for, for who? For this runaway slave who's a man with nothing, a person of no account in the Roman social world, a slave who, according to the law, should be beaten and punished and sentenced to hard labor, even death. Paul says to Philemon, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong, like stealing money or running away from you and breaking your trust, then charge it to me. And Paul puts his his name on the line for this worthless slave. And why does he do that? Because that, my friends, is the gospel. It's what Jesus did for Paul, right? And Paul knows that he, like Onesimus, is nothing but a runaway slave. You see, Paul was created, like all of us are, to serve God. Paul, in his former life before coming to Christ, he killed Christians. He persecuted the church. He lived in rebellion against God. Paul was self-righteous by his own admission. But he didn't steal money from his master. He stole something far more valuable. He stole glory from God. He took credit for the things that, that God deserves credit for his own good works, his own good morality. And filled with pride, Paul thumbed his nose at his creator. He ran away from him, right? And Paul knows now that, that he's no better than Onesimus, that he too deserves to be punished for his sin, that he deserves nothing good from God, his true master. But the good news is that someone interceded for Paul, right? Someone interceded for him when he was a runaway from God, someone advocated on his behalf, someone named Jesus. And the good news that transformed Paul's life and the lives of Philemon and Onesimus and my life as well, and hopefully yours, it's the truth that Jesus has put his life on the line for each of us. Though we're nothing but worthless runaway slaves, right? Jesus says to the Father, he says, welcome this one here. As, as you would welcome me. And if, if Ryan has done any wrong to you, Father, charge it to my account. I will pay the fine, Jesus says. I will take the punishment he deserves. And if we acknowledge that we're helpless, that we're in need of mercy, and we seek that forgiveness, Jesus becomes that faithful advocate like the Apostle Paul. He, he defends us before the judgment seat of God. 
And that's good news. That's the kind of news that can set slaves free, right? And Paul is simply asking his friend in this letter, and again, the way he does it is just amazing. Go back and read it again. But in this letter, he just, he says, remember your own story of salvation. Now, he doesn't come out and say that, but that's what he's saying. Remember what happened to you. Live out the gospel you claim to believe. And the story here this morning of Onesimus is our story. It's my story. It's your story. We're runaways, and we can come to know true freedom, freedom from our sin and our guilt and the shame of what we've done through the loving mercy and the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. And that's the final challenge I want to leave you with this morning. You see, Paul, he wrote this letter to encourage his friend to live out the gospel. He wasn't going to order him to do it. That's not the point. He knows that, Ones- or that Philemon is a Christian. And he says, look at, look at your own life. Look at what God has done for you. Do the same now. Choose to forgive the man who wronged you. Receive your slave as a brother. Give the same grace that you've received from God. So my question for you, where are you living out the gospel today? Where is God asking you to forgive someone, to receive someone, to give grace or to show mercy to someone today? And as we close, I want you to remember this story. Don't forget it. Remember this runaway slave who found an advocate, a friend in the Apostle Paul? Remember that you too have an advocate, someone who's going to stand up for you and your sin and is going to pay the price that you owe and take the punishment you deserve. In Galatians, Paul writes this. He says, Christ, I paraphrase, Christ has set you free. And then he adds, Do not use your freedom, though, as an excuse to sin. In love, serve others. And that's, in a nutshell, how we live out the gospel, as Paul did, as Philemon did. We've been set free to serve Jesus, to serve others in love. So who can you serve today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this snapshot of a moment in history between two friends. I can just picture that relationship. Two men who, um, one who led the other to Christ, uh, good friends who, who talked and struggled and suffered together, and then with Paul leaving and going off to Rome, Lord, uh, suddenly this runaway slave appearing who becomes a close friend as well, a a son even to him. And now seeing these two people he loves and wanting there to be true transformation in the relationship. And Lord, we, we face these situations as well, not the same, but we have people that um, you're calling us to love, to forgive. Maybe there's people that we tend to look down on or we, we don't think much of. But Lord, you call us to, to look at them as a brother or a sister in Christ. And Lord, we can't do that by willpower alone. We can't do that just because we know it's the right thing to do. You have to change our hearts. And so I pray this morning that we would remember our own salvation, the gift that you've given us, and that you would change our hearts from the inside out to be the kind of people who love this way. May we serve others in love today. In Jesus' name, amen.